0: Today we're finishing up a series that we're calling Right Sizing, and we've been talking about how our lives are never, ever, ever, they were never meant to be jam-packed full with stuff, physical possessions, uh, to be jam-packed full, brimming over with commitments, with exhaustion, that we were meant to be living lives where we follow Jesus. And Jesus modeled for us that we don't want to spend our lives... Living and trying to manage a lifestyle, we want to be living our lives. And in order to do that, we have to right-size them. We have to follow his lead. Now, this is a topic that's personally near and dear to my heart and my wife's heart. Um, Last year, we sold 75 to 80% of everything that we owned. Uh, We were um, struck by the statistic that the average house that's represented here has... 300,000 items that if you liter- literally go and count every single item that you have, and that doesn't mean that everybody in this room is living in an opulent fashion. It just means there's just a lot of stuff over the years, and we, we are not extravagant in any way, shape, or form, but we have a tendency not to throw stuff away because we want to use it. We don't want to be wasteful. Well, over the years, we have this stuff, and so what we did is I went over a six year, six month period of time, and I asked two questions to every single item that we owned in the cars, in the closet, in the house, the house itself, the cars, every single thing that we owned. We asked two questions Does this serve a purpose? And does this bring value and joy to our lives and allow us to serve God better? And if it didn't, I took it. We went to the basement. And then we put it in either the sell pile or the donate pile. And then last summer we had a big yard sale. Lisa uh, was in charge of sales. I was in charge of marketing. So I put the signs out. I have a tendency, people will come up at a yard sale and I'll sell something and I'll well will you take five bucks? I'm like, sure, I'll take five bucks. And Lisa's like, we paid three hundred dollars for that. What are you doing? I'm terrible at this. So I was in charge of going to Facebook Marketplace and selling our stuff, which was an amazing place. I had no idea. Quickly finding people where you can sell your stuff. Everybody goes to eBay, go to Facebook Marketplace. Turn around, we sold all the stuff, and then we bought stuff we actually could use, and we donated a bunch of stuff to people who could actually use the stuff that was just sitting around. Now, right-sizing is more than just possessions. That's the starting point. It's also about as Frank and Melissa hit it out of the park talking about relationships and commitments. Do you really need, everything that's on your calendar, do you really need to be doing those things? The relationships that you have and you crave and you want, are these the relationships that you want to have? Now, everybody in the room has two lists. Everybody, at least that's a Jesus follower in this room, has two lists they operate off of. Number one, things everyone needs to make room for as disciples of Jesus, It's not just about getting rid of stuff, it's about making room for the right stuff. And if you're a disciple of Jesus, um, you are going to be making room for things like sleep. Sleep was a priority to Jesus. Are you getting enough sleep? Prayer and Bible reading, time invested in family, a full day of Sabbath rest where you do nothing, you just shut it down. Um, gathering for worship every Lord's Day, eating real food and exercising, tithing, sharing our faith, being in a group. There are lots of things that Jesus and the Bible teaches us that we're supposed to do, but then there are things that are uniquely made for you. And I wonder what that is. What is it that you want to do if you had time you would do more of? I have a very good friend. His name is Dan. He's sitting right here um there are pros and cons to dan the pro is one thing one cool thing he does is he loves going to baseball games with his mitt in his hand and catching baseball games or, or catching you can't catch a whole baseball game you want to catch the balls so go find dan rashy on social media and you will see in his feed all these different balls you're getting i have no idea how you do this it's pretty amazing that's the pro the downside he's a yankees fan so i won't go won't there anymore i have a friend who's a golfer and he's terrible but he's funny. So when he's on the golf course, he will make fun of himself and other people. It's the best Instagram follow um, I have. I have a friend that's a walker. The guy is a walker. He is a, like knows how to walk. Man. He's committed to health and bringing people along with him. I have a friend who's a biker who does that as well. What is it that uniquely brings you alive? And so let me ask you this question. If you had an extra five hours every single week, and you weren't allowed to do anything that had to do with work and doing something for your family, but you had to. God came to you and said, the world is going to blow up if you don't start doing this thing five hours a week. What would you do with that five hours? Lean over really fast and tell the person next to you. Go. All right, has everybody got theirs? Here's the question. Why don't you have that extra five hours every single week? Jesus would say, whatever it is that you need to get rid of to create that extra five hours to do that thing that makes you come alive, you need to do that. Um, Our church staff um, has an ongoing consulting relationship with a great, great guy who runs a organization that helps churches and pastors um, be more effective and align their resources, the people, money, time, and energy, be able to be, have maximum effectiveness. What he also do, does on the side is he works with senior pastors like me to help see the forest, to basically get out of the forest and s- so they can see the trees. Because sometimes it's just really hard. So I spent two full days with my friend Doug Pouring out my heart. And he had all of these exercises. And we had these white sheets all over his house. And we're going around and he's writing. That was, It was exhausting. At the end of two days, I was like, all right, Doug. So what do you got? He said, I don't know what else anybody else has, t- has told you. But I'll tell you right now. If you want to be the best husband you could possibly be, the best dad you possibly could be, the best pastor you can possibly be, and the best follower of Jesus you can possibly be, you need to go to the mountains a minimum of one time a month. I was like, what? I was waiting for this new, like, insight. And he was like, no, no, no. He said, I've been listening for the last two days for you to talk. And every time you talk about being on a trout stream, or hiking, or biking, and mountaineering, doing all of these different things, You come alive. He said, what you need to do is just bring more people along with you to do those things. That's what you need to do. And I have this feeling that whatever you shared is a holy thing. That God created you uniquely to do that particular thing on a regular basis because it brings you alive. And as St. Irenaeus said, a human being, or the glory of God is a human being fully alive. And the reason we're not fully alive is cuz that extra 5 hours that you have you're, you're you're watching television. Other things that aren't helpful for us. Now, this is a must make for must make room for activity that I'm going to share with right now. There is the list of the Jesus stuff And then there's a list of the personal stuff. This goes in the Jesus column. This is for everybody. And I'm going to take you through the first chapter of the Gospel of Mark so you can see it. But this, I never make promises. You you know I don't like... If you do this, it's going to change your life. This will... This is a promise from Jesus himself that if you do this on a regular basis, this will make you come alive. This is a life hack from Jesus himself. Mark chapter 1 begins where Jesus had left Nazareth where he grew up, and he went to the north side of the Sea of Galilee to a little city called Capernaum. Why did he go there? Because it was beautiful. He had a few friends that lived around there, but it was beautiful. It was right on the sea. If you were here the first week, you saw the video that I showed. The very first thing that he did is he called two sets of brothers, four guys to come along with them, James and John, Simon, and Andrew. As they're walking, they looked at Jesus. They were like, what are we going to do? He was like, what are we going to do? We're going to church today. And they went to the synagogue. Now, the synagogue was a small building that was the center of every single Jewish town. Um, The synagogue in Capernaum, I actually was there a few months ago. Take a look at this picture. This is the floor of the synagogue that Jesus did his first miracle at and at which he preached some of you are here, usually about 20% of our congregation, every single time we gather, about 20% on the fringes are people who aren't committed to Christianity. And you honestly think the rest of us are deluded, okay? Now, the reason I laugh about that is because we were in your, sh- in your spot before. Sitting on the outside, we're like, why are these, what are these people, these people are like... Standing there and talking to the air and thinking Jesus is real and that sort of thing. Listen, a delusion is a belief not based on fact, and that is not what Christianity is. Jesus goes into the synagogue. It says, verse 21, They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. In other words... Jesus talked about real stuff. The teachers of the law literally would go, okay, Leviticus chapter 6, here we go. Let's read it line by line by line. Let's memorize it. When you come back next week, Leviticus chapter 7, line by line. I have people that visit here all the time from fundamentalist churches who are like, you need to go through the gospel or you need to go through the book of Romans. Like six years through the book of Romans. And I'm like, Not happening. Not happening, because that's not what Jesus did. The reason Jesus taught with authority is because he talked about real stuff. But in the middle of that synagogue, while they were there, as Jesus was teaching, a man cried out. He was possessed with an unpure spirit. What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus looked at him and said, be quiet, and sternly said, come out of him, And the impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. And the people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what the heck is going on? This guy just talked to a spirit and it left. And then it says news about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. Side note, in the Gospels, you're going to hear stories about Jesus performing exorcisms. The Gospel writers very clearly know So you know when the gospel writers will talk about Jesus healing different diseases, but you never hear the gospel writers talking about mental illness. Why is that? Because in the first century, people would attribute mental illness to demons, okay? The gospel writers did not have that worldview. They had the view that, like, in the, the distant world of the universe, that evil from Satan was somehow responsible for the brokenness of the world, but they didn't think someone with schizophrenia, for instance, was possessed by a demon. Sometimes when the gospel writers talk about demon possessions, it's literally talking about a mental illness, but in other instances, it's literally talking about demon possession, which is what this is. But it was such, like, groundbreaking, News about him spread all throughout the region. There were 170,000 people that lived where Jesus ministered in an area called Lower Galilee. He blew up overnight. It was the equivalent of you posting a video of your cat on Tuesday night and by Saturday morning. It's been watched 16.5 million times on YouTube. That's what happened here. And so it continues. As they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon, or Peter, and Andrew. Now, archaeologists believe they've actually found Peter's house. Here's a picture of actually Peter's house. You will notice on the right-hand side, all the way in the top corner, there's like a little thing and has plaster on it. Um, There was a Byzantine church that was built over this to protect this. And as they were doing archaeological digs through that, they found that this house was different from all of the other houses that were there. It was plastered and it had Christian writings on it, and so they believe that it is either Peter's house or it's even possibly Jesus' house. Could be one room among the house, the complex, where Peter's family's from. That said, Peter's mother in is sick. And it says as soon as they left the synagogue, they went to his house of Simon and Andrew, and the mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her, And so he went into her, took her by the hand, helped her up, and the fever left her, and she immediately began to get up, and she was better. Now, we know from history, we know from Josephus, the Jewish historian in the first century, and we know from the Bible itself, that more than likely, what do you think she was suffering for? Why did she have a fever? What do you think it was? Historians tell us that more than likely, it was malaria. Malaria. I don't know how many of you have been on a mission trip with our church where you'll go and get like malarone or something like that that you'll take so you make sure you don't get malaria because it is a nasty thing. Jewish historian Josephus said of this area that is pestilent and disease-ridden. It was a major health problem. In fact, historian Jonathan Reed said for every five people that died in that area, one of them died from malaria. Now think about that. If Jesus was going to do a first miracle that was going to go viral, heal malaria. Boom. So people came running from all over the place. Medical professionals tell us that people with malaria will suffer from chills and fevers and muscle pain and headaches and diarrhea and sometimes brain damage and be put into a coma. It was a major deal. And so because of that, it says that evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and the demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door. How many people have you ever had in your house at one time? One time. Most number people shoved it in your house. How many? My, uh, my middle one, super extrovert, said, Dad, I want to have my 13th birthday party. I'm going to have people come over the house. We'll have it in the back, have it on the deck, backyard, that sort of thing. I said, yes, but I don't want this thing getting out of hand. Only your close friends. Only your close friends. So I stopped counting after 87 kids showed up to this thing, right? Imagine 2,000 kids showing up. The whole town gathered, and it said Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Now, Jesus knew he could stay there all day and keep healing. It was dark from beginning of the morning till night. He's already helped a guy who was demon-possessed helping people who were sick. All day long he healed people, and then everybody laid down and went to sleep. And then it says the very next morning, while it was still dark, Jesus started tiptoeing in between the people not to wake them up, and went, it says, to a solitary place where he prayed. Listen. Some of you need to hear this scripture verse. Because you are taking care of everyone and everything except you. And I just want you to understand, you did not get that from Jesus. Jesus modeled serving other people, taking care of himself. Serving and taking care of himself. Verse 36 says, Simon and the companions uh, companions came and looked for him. When they found him, they yelled out, where are you? Everyone's looking for you. And he looked up. They're like, I saw it. They're like... 80 people who are blind back there. There are 170 people that can't walk. You need to get back there. They're agitated. What's going on? And he looked at him and he said, you know what? We're just going to go to another town. And they're like, you can't. Now, I want you to notice something. Jesus could have stayed in that very spot until he died. People, every single day of the year, would have been coming over oceans and boats to come and see him. But he didn't do it because he made time for himself, and when he made time for himself, he could listen. He could listen to God, and he could listen to his life, and he had the ability to say no. Can I share something with you? No is a sign of compassion, no matter how many people complain that you aren't there for them. No is a word found on the lips of those who realize that following Jesus is a long marathon instead of a sprint. No is an indicator of humility, boundaries, and a life fully lived within God's provision. No is a complete sentence. The reason our lives are filled with stuff that have no purpose and don't bring us joy is because of what? We can't say what? no. So here we go. We're going to say it all out. I'm going to go one, two, three, and you're going to yell no. You ready? One, two, three. No. That's pretty good. That was pretty good. We're getting there. Turn over to the person next to you and look at them and say, you know what I'm about to say to you. Just get my eyes on you. We have to stop saying yes to everything because if we're saying yes to everything, we're not going to be able to say yes to the most important things that are in our lives. But all of that is not why I'm sharing this with you. Jesus became a massive viral hit. Everybody wanted a piece of him. He was the hottest ticket of the summer and right at the height of his explosive takeoff, it says, a man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees. If you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus was indignant. Not at the man, but at all of the people and yelling out, he's unclean, don't touch him, he's unclean. He reached out his hand and touched the man, I'm willing, he said, be clean, and immediately the leprosy left him. Jesus was never too busy for people like that. There were two groups of people. Gerhard Linsky said there were two groups of people, sociologist type guy. So two groups of people in Galilee at the time of Jesus, political rulers and landowning aristocrats, about 1% of the population. The other 99% of the population, peasants. Now, people who represented the peasant class, 99%, they had descending ranks of authority and power. At the top of that group, the administrators of finances and political affairs of the aristocrats, the retail traders like James and John's dad, who owned a fishing business, they were pretty well off. Craftsmen and artisans, these were builders, carpenters, and stonemasons, Jesus in the New Testament is called a tecton. He was a builder. People will tell you all the time that Jesus was poor. Jesus was not poor. Jesus was a tecton. They did an archaeological dig in Jerusalem of someone who was a tecton, a builder, a, a carpenter. And they lived probably like everybody around you. They were comfortable. Jesus chose to give away his stuff, but he was comfortable. He had money. Then there were tenant farmers who would farm plots of lands. How many of Jesus' parables start out like, there was this guy who owned a lot of land, and he had some people that he hired to, to basically farm land for him. That's these people. And then there were the unskilled day laborers. Remember the parable of people that got hired that day to work and at that hour, and one got paid starting later in the afternoon, and he got the same amount of money as everybody else. Those are the unskilled day laborers. And then there are the despised trades, They're considered unclean and inferior. They're the prostitutes, the dung collectors, people that wore leather or used leather for stuff. The way you cleaned the leather is you would go get animal poop, and you would smear it over the leather, and once it dried, you would scrape it off. Someone had to go get the poop, all right? And then way down at the bottom were the expendables, criminals and beggars who were blind, deformed, and lame, like the person who was the leper. Now the super cool thing for the leper is that not only does he have no money and no power and no authority, and he's at the bottom rung in society, but the Jews believed if they even touched that person, they would have to do religious rituals and baths to get right in the eyes of God again, and so Jews would yell out, unclean, unclean, don't touch him, here comes bad news. This is why I'm bringing this up right at the explosion of his popularity, right when Jesus could have, if he had wanted to, spent all of his time with the 1%. Here's this guy that he bumps into that has leprosy, and he stops. He stops. He looks at him. And says he reached out his hand and he touched him and the point that i believe jesus is modeling for us is that jesus made spending time with the expendable people a priority and so should we jesus called these people the least of these gerhard calls him calls them the expendables whatever you call them we know it when we see it people abandoned at nursing homes refugees the poor prisoners Let me give you three ways today you can start making room in your life for the expendables. The first is this. When you get paid from now on, I want you to follow Jesus' example, and I want you to take a portion of that money, a small portion, not a ton of money, but just a portion, and I want you to set it aside in your wallet or your purse, and I want you to put it in a place where you say, that's money for the poor, okay? Okay? Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, when you give to the needy, not if you give to the needy. A while ago, I was like, I'm not doing that. And 1 John three seventeen says, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no penny on them, how could the love of God be in that person? And I participate. I want to be a part of when we build um, counseling centers in Cambodia for people who have been trafficked. But every single day, this is a practice. This is a practice that brings life. So what I do is, it's, it's my choice, I just, I take $20, it's not a lot of money, but I'll get you four or five dollar bills, and I'll take $20, I'll fold them and put them in the corner of my pocket, and whenever I see someone in need, I'll just simply go up and put it in their hand, give them a hug, and say, hey listen, I see you. You may think like no one sees you and you don't matter. God sees you, and then I'll pray for him, and that will be it. Now, here's the thing. By the next time I get paid, if that money is still in my wallet, that is a a blinking light on the dashboard of my life saying, hey, wait a minute. You're not spending enough time with the expendables. Now, here's the second thing. I want you to pick a place and make it a habit to go there and make it your happy place. I want you to find a place of expendables and I want you to go and make it a regular habit where you're going to go back there. We just had SurfFest. Looking at all the different places, every, that was an amazing event, but please understand the reason we do SurfFest is not so one or two times a year we can say, wow, we went and did that, but it's simply to give you a taste of all the different places you can go so you can go back and keep going back. A number of years ago, me and me and some very good friends of mine um, said, we're going to go to a, uh, a housing complex where even the police don't want to go. Called around, found, found a place that nobody else wants to go. And we just started loading up um, our cards with groceries and would go and knock on the doors. I loved going and meeting the people. There were drug dealers and it was It was just a wretched place. One day, one morning, Saturday morning, If I remember, it was about 20 degrees. I was freezing. I had my heaviest mittens on and a heavy coat. And I knocked on a door, and a little three-year-old boy opened up the door, and he had nothing on but his underwear. I said, hey, bud, are you you okay? Are, Are your parents home? He was old enough to talk, but he didn't want to talk that much. And he said, I said, are your brothers or is grandma here? Is someone here with you? Now, there are two kinds of homes and neighborhoods that are like that. There are the homes that have the flat screen TVs and everything in them. Those are um, the homes of the drug dealers. This was the kind of home for a prostitute. Um, And I said, can can I come in? It, It feels cold in there. Do you have the heat on? And I looked over in the corner where there should have been a kitchen table and there should have been Lots of things. And there was just a blanket on the ground. And I saw food crumbs and like a little blanket where he was covering up. And I just went in and I looked in the, in the refrigerator and there was nothing. There were empty beer cans everywhere, needles. It was. I was filled with holy rage and holy joy. Holy rage because of the injustice of this three-year-old kid and what I knew was coming down the bike for him. But holy joy because I got to be there for him. I didn't have to be there on a Saturday morning. I got to be there on a Saturday morning. And that's the joy of following Jesus, is that we get to be his hands and feet to the people that he calls the least in our culture the best thing that ever happened all of the time going there was not standing up to the injustice of the laws, the housing laws for these people, the way they were mistreated by the police, by the city. But the best thing that came out of that was what it did to my heart. I promise you, I promise you, if you get rid of of the extraneous things in your life, and you right-size it, and you make room for the expendables, you will experience the joy that Jesus promises. Let's pray. God, give us your heart for people who are hurting. Give us your heart for people in pain. In the midst of our busyness, and our importance, and our priorities and our plans, us to stop and look people in the eye who need us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to Brian Jones Sermons. For more information and to find similar articles on this topic and more, please go to Brian's website at brianjones.com.